Welcome, I'm Rose Aguilar, and this is your call. Today's guest, Dr. Uche Blackstock, always knew she would be a doctor. She grew up watching her mother, Dr. Dale Gloria Blackstock, care for patients at a public hospital near their Brooklyn neighborhood in the 80s and 90s. Dr. Blackstock writes, The daughter of a single mother from New Jersey, raised on public assistance, she'd become the first person in her family to graduate college. And after graduating from Harvard Medical School in 1976, she'd return home to her community. When you came in for a visit with Dr. Blackstock, you weren't only having your blood pressure or cholesterol checked, you were also meeting with someone who was going to assess how your whole being was faring. Dr. Uche Blackstock and her twin sister, Oni, chose to carry on that work. They attended their mother's alma mater, Harvard Medical School, and became the school's first black mother-daughter legacy graduates. But it wasn't until Dr. Blackstock embarked on her own career in medicine that she realized what a rarity her mother truly was, both because fewer than 3% of physicians in the field identify as black women and because her mother was an early pioneer of structurally competent and culturally responsive care, which means that the entire complex nature of the patient's background and the social context in which they live, work, love, and pray is considered. Dr. Uche Blackstock says context is crucial to improving health outcomes for Black people. Her new book, Legacy, A Black Physician Reckons with Racism in Medicine, is part memoir and part historical account of the failings of the medical field to adequately care for Black people. She writes, Although I wrote this book as a tribute to my mother's legacy and to tell the story of my life and career in medicine, I have ultimately found in the writing that the book is as much about my work and awakening as a physician as it is a call to reimagine who we are as a country. How can we truly be better and do better by those who are most underserved and underestimated by systemic racism? The truth is we need better care infrastructure everywhere, not just in health. Dr. Uche Blackstock is a physician and founder and CEO of Advancing Health Equity. That's an organization whose goal is to partner with healthcare organizations to dismantle racism in healthcare organizations and to close the gap in racial health inequities. Dr. Blackstock previously worked as an associate professor in the Department of Emergency Medicine and the Faculty Director of Recruitment, Retention, and Inclusion in the Office of Diversity Affairs at NYU School of Medicine. Dr. Blackstock has also been an emergency room doctor. She received her undergraduate and medical degrees from Harvard University, making her and her twin sister, Oni, the first black mother-daughter legacies from Harvard Medical School. Her new book, Legacy, A Black Physician Reckons with Racism in Medicine, is already a New York Times bestseller, and it just came out. Hi, Dr. Blackstock. Thank you so much for joining us, and congratulations on this amazing book. Thank you so much, Rose. I really appreciate you having me on, and I'm excited to talk with you. Well, what a journey this has been for you. I mean, I remember watching you during COVID talk about what you were seeing, and it was so interesting to learn in your book that you took an op-ed class with the op-ed project. I I Mm -hmm. actually mentor with them, so that was amazing to learn. And that really began this incredible journey that you are now on. Yes, and Rose, I have to say that intro you gave, uh, it gave me goosebumps. It made me very emotional. And thank you for honoring, you know, the work that I've been doing over the last few years. I really have, in essence, um, kind of found my voice over the last few years. And it did start with taking the op-ed project for, for, for your listeners, if they don't know. It is a workshop for women and people of color to really amplify our voices about issues that we feel are important in our communities. So I took that workshop, I believe it was in, I think it may be in 2018 or 2019. And that really lit the fire underneath me to speak loud and clearly about racial health inequities. And and I think what's so important about this story, Dr. Blackstock, is that there are so many people out there who have stories to tell, but might not know how to go about it. And it's just writing an op-ed could open so many doors. All of a sudden, you end up on radio shows, you might end up on a TV show, and then lo and behold, a book agent will see you and say, you have a book inside of you. 
Actually, it's interesting because I feel like it was the the op-eds that I started writing. I wrote one in 2019 about um, the 50th anniversary of the affirmative action policies at Harvard Medical School, which my mother benefited from. Um, And then I wrote actually another op-ed about leaving academic medicine as a Black faculty member and why so many of us were leaving. And really that that op-ed about leaving academic medicine, um, it ended up going viral and the response was was overwhelming. So when the pandemic hit New York City in March of 2020, I knew I had to write about what I was seeing because I was deeply concerned that Black communities would be disproportionately impacted and they were. And you have seen up front just every aspect of our healthcare system. I mean, working at a clinic and just seeing the front lines of COVID, it was very interesting to read in the beginning that you saw a wide range of people, but then as COVID really kicked in, you saw the frontline workers, mostly Latinos and Black people. Uh, you've also been an emergency room doctor. You've served on the faculty at NYU. (laughs) I mean, you've really seen all aspects of our healthcare system. One other thing, it was fascinating to read about your experience working for a very well-resourced hospital and an under-resourced hospital. Yeah, you know, yeah. So it's it's so interesting because the part of the book is, you know, people think that physicians like we know everything. Um, I have had to unlearn and relearn everything that I've been taught in medical school and and, in residency, um, like as a practicing physician. And one part of that is this revelation I made when I was on faculty at NYU, which people know as this very prestigious, well-resourced university. We also were working at um, a public hospital, Bellevue, which is um, one of the largest public hospitals actually in the country and in an oldest actually in, in, in Manhattan. And they are blocks apart. And really literally right in front of me, I saw two hospitals that, even though they were so close to each other, had this distinctly different set of resources available to their patients, even the way that patients were treated. It was clearly a two-tiered system that was happening right in front of many of us health professionals, but very few people actually spoke up about it. And it was also just really enraging to learn that when Poor people are picked up. They are not brought to the private, well-resourced hospital. Exactly. And, and there, are, um, there are articles like in the medical literature about this, um, especially over the last few years, about, you know, paramedics, you know, being told in, 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 in maybe not necessarily explicit terms, but it being implicitly understood that you don't bring certain types of patients to private hospitals. Like you don't bring someone who's, who's obviously unhoused. You don't bring someone who's obviously um, intoxicated to the private hospital, because if you do, um, the receiving you know, health professionals, the, the staff will give you a hard time in doing so. So the paramedics know like there's an unwritten rule that you don't bring certain types of patients to the, the more affluent hospitals because you don't want those patients that are there to feel uncomfortable or you don't want, you know, you want a certain payer mix. Um, and that's not going to happen if you're bringing people who are unhoused, uninsured or underinsured to the private hospital. You write that in your 10 years working at these hospitals, Tisch and Bellevue, you can count on one hand the number of times anyone broke the silence about the existing segregated system of healthcare. And when someone did, it was usually a black person or a person of color. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it was so clear. I mean, I can't even, I mean, there are things I didn't even include in the book, but just how what was acceptable for patients to be treated like um, at Bellevue versus Tisch, um, you know, just even in terms of the tone and the manner in which they were spoken to, um, there were obvious differences. And the really sad part is that both are teaching hospitals. So we are, you know, we are constantly around medical students and, and residents who are, you know, physicians in training and they see this, they see this in front of them, they see that no one is really doing a critical analysis of why there is this these disparities between these two hospitals in front of them. And I feel like, you know, they, have, of course, absorb this messaging that certain patients, if they're uninsured or underinsured, um, you know, on public assurance, insurance, that they don't deserve to be treated a certain way. They don't deserve to be treated with respect and dignity. 
I think this is such an important point because as you write in your book, your book really goes into the legacy of your incredible mom. It's also a call to action. I mean, you write about the fact that we're the only wealthy country in the world that does not have universal health care. You write about the systemic racism that is baked into the system um, even today. I, I just really, I'm so glad that you call out a lot of these diversity initiatives when what they're doing is putting a face out to say, yes, we have a black person on staff, but behind the scene, scenes, nothing is going to change. Yeah. And you know, what's interesting, you know, I, and in legacy, you know, I, I, I was so fortunate to be able to um, talk about my mom, but also use some of the writings that she had shared in essays, like from the 19, 1990s about what she was witnessing. And, you know, it struck me when I was writing legacy that so much actually had not changed from when she was practicing in the eighties and nineties, you know, they didn't have the same vocabulary. Like they weren't talking about social determinants of health or health equity per se, but my mother was making these observations, obviously on a community level about what was happening in her, in her neighborhood. And then I'm writing this book, you know, in 2022 and 2023. And I'm thinking to myself, wow, it actually is more dangerous for me now to give birth than 20 to 30 years ago, wow. right? This is the, despite advances in innovation, research, and technology. And this is more dangerous for you and all of these degrees and all of this incredible work that you have done. Yeah, I mean, when I was, when I, when I read about this in the book, when I was pregnant with both my children, they were very anxiety provoking experiences for me because. I, I knew the statistics. I didn't know all of the history. And I write about that's kind of what, you know, I learned about the erasure of black midwives and midwives in general and the, the medicalization of the field of obstetrics and gynecology. But I also recognize that for me, my socioeconomic status, um, the fact that I have two, you know, Harvard degrees, that that was not as protective for me of my health and, you know, from complications as it is for my white peers. Today, we're spending the hour with Dr. Uche Blackstock. We're talking about her new book, Legacy, A Black Physician Reckons with Racism in Medicine. It is just out now, and it's already a New York Times bestseller. If you have any questions or comments for Dr. Blackstock, if you have stories, uh, your, your, your own health stories, whether as a patient or a provider, we'd love to hear from you. 866-798-8255. You can also email your call at ka. LW.org. So let's talk a bit about your mom because this is where it all began. You and your twin sister Oni grew up watching your mom, Dr. Dale Gloria Blackstock, care for patients at a public hospital near your Brooklyn neighborhood in the 80s and 90s. And you write that your mom used to tell you that growing up, she rarely saw a physician, let alone a black one, raised by a single mother and without a father in sight with five siblings. My mother spent her childhood living in what she described as a series of rodent and roach-infested apartments, including one where a rat had once bitten her on the forehead. She still had the scar to prove it. Back then, the family received support from aid to dependent children, or ADC, otherwise known as welfare. But according to our mother, those funds were never enough. So tell us a bit more about your mom's yeah. upbringing and how she became a doctor. Yeah, oh, I'm so so happy to be able to share her story because you know, as as you know, but you, your listeners may not, she passed away from acute myelogenous leukemia when Oni and I we were only 19, and she was she was only 47 years old. But by that time, she had um, made a tremendous influence on both Oni and me. But essentially, I feel like you know, her childhood obviously was very very different different than than Oni and I. Like you know, the fact that she grew up moving so many times, changing schools, experiencing food insecurity. And then, you know, despite all of that, just having this really strong curiosity in science and strong work work ethic. That, and she was one of the lucky ones that she was able to actually be the first person in her family to go to Brooklyn, to, to, to go to college. She graduated from Brooklyn College. And while she was there, she actually had a, a Black chemistry professor who saw her potential and encouraged her to apply to medical school. She got into all of her medical schools and ended up matriculating at Harvard Medical School. 
You you talked about this earlier. You discovered a, a letter that your mother wrote over three decades ago for the event program of a 1990 convention of local black physicians in which she grapples with so many of the same problems we're confronting today. And this is amazing because this could be said today. 30 years ago, your mother wrote... It is ironic that as we enter the age of neo-technology, we do not have a healthcare system in place that is equitable for all participants. Worse, a healthcare system that refuses to embrace all in need. I mean, it was amazing to read those words. They could have been written yesterday. I know, and that's what makes me so sad. But, you know, you know after Harvard Med, my mother, she could have gone anywhere, but she came back. Um, and as you mentioned, she ended up working in the same neighborhood that she grew up in, taking care of her family, friends, and neighbors. And so, you know, I think my mother was acutely aware of like, you know, you know, these issues that she talked about in that quote, you know, so she was doing her part working with other local black physicians. She was head of a of a group of local black women physicians in Brooklyn who organized community health fairs and and did that diabetes and high blood pressure screenings and connected residents with the social services they need. So, you know, I write about how she was practicing this culturally responsive, structurally competent care where we are very much aware that when we talk to our patients, it's not just, you know, this dyad where, you know, we are ignoring the the context, social political context in which they live, but we're taking all of that into consideration and so, yes, my mom, you know, that was the kind of care she was practicing in the 80s and 90s. And, and the fact that today, I think if she were here with us and saw these statistics, you know, saw these and heard about these experiences that Black patients are still having, I you know, think she'd be appalled. And that was one of my motivations for, for writing Legacy, that this is an issue that is not going away. And most of all, it's a call to action to different groups to make a difference. It was so interesting to read about the kind of holistic care that your mother practiced. And it reminded me of the naturopathic doctors of today, which usually do not take insurance and are really only available for people can, who can afford sometimes packages, $1,500. So mm-hmm. your mother was just so ahead of her time. She, yeah, she really, she really was. She was just quite a special, um, special human being you know, in, in that respect. And I even think about, you know, I talk about this, this idea of unlearning and relearning what, what, you know, what I've been taught in my medical education and training. And a big part of it is that when we have our patient in front of us and we see disease and illness, often in medical education, you're taught that you're seeing that because of poor decisions that your patient made. Your patient should have eaten better. They should have worked out. They should stop drinking alcohol. But what we, what we are beginning to understand, and which I think my mother really understood at, profoundly at the time that she was practicing, is that when we do see illness and disease, that is an impact of like systemic factors on our patient's health and that we have to consider so much more than what's happening in that exam room or that clinic room, that we have to consider what's happening at that person's job, what's happening in their home or in their community. And that's something that Again, my mother was so far ahead of her time in thinking about for her patients. It was also interesting to learn that your mother's class at Harvard was one of the most diverse in the school's history because of the diversity initiatives that began soon after Martin Luther King Jr.'s assassination. It's it's devastating that it took that to result in these initiatives. You could say the same thing about George Floyd, and you write about that in Legacy, and we'll talk about that later. You write that a full 10% of your mother's class were Black students. The faculty gave a lot of support to everyone in class, but your mother was shy due to her stutter, and she ended up not being able to take advantage of the hell. You also write about how she was questioning whether racism was at work. During one of her rotations, a professor held open a door for a white male student while letting it slam in her face. Another time when a male professor made a joke in bad taste about women during a radiology conference, he apologized to a white student with an earshot, but not to your black mother who was standing right next to him. I think this is so important because this is a, this is the racism that happens when most people aren't looking. They just like most people don't know about these these little cuts of racism that happen. Can you talk more about that? 
Sure. You know, it's, it's interesting because, you know, even those examples that you describe from the book, you know, my mother's white peers, probably, you know, were right there when it was happening. But as you allude to, like, they probably didn't even notice it was happening, which is why her experience could have been or was so profoundly distinct than that of her peers. And which I feel like it can be even more isolating. Um, and so, you know, we talk about that experience for Black people dealing with everyday racism, you know, that it causes, and I write about this in the book, like, you know, a wear and tear on the body. The, the public health researcher, she talks about um, a process called weathering that prematurely ages us and makes us susceptible to disease. But it really is a, a lot of these, what we call, you know, that micro events that really are not micro, that have actually macro impacts on not just our, you know, mental health, but our physical health as well. Um, and, you know, the experience my mother had, well, I did not have, you know, such similar experiences when I was in medical school. There were experiences, like I talk about what happened with, with my missed appendicitis as a first year medical student, um, that I wonder would have happened if I wasn't a young Black woman. What do you think? I mean, do you think that your book is now a New York Times bestseller. You're writing op-eds. So many people are speaking out in ways that they weren't a decade or two ago. And when you talk about the racism that really adds up and results in premature aging, do you think that people are finally getting this? (laughs) I know, I know, I know. So so by by nature, I am an optimist. And also, but also the other part is, you know, what I found myself in a position to do over the last few years, like through writing those op-eds and then becoming like a media expert is really trying to break down a lot of this information that, you know, we never learned or was left out either, either intentionally or unintentionally, but be able to communicate that to the, not only the public, but to policymakers, um, to institutional leaders and to do it in a way that is very accessible. So for me, like the fact that legacy has become a New York times bestseller actually tells me that one people want to hear this black woman physician's voice, my voice, which for a long time, I didn't, I didn't think was important. You know, that was also a process that I talk about in the book, you know, having been in academic medicine as a black woman physician, I often felt very silenced and muzzled, especially in my DEI role. Mm-hmm. Um, but it also tells me that that there are people out there that care very, very deeply about you know these these racial health inequities that we that we're seeing today that are actually worsening, right? And so my hope is that you know this is signaling that there are people out there in various roles of power and influence who care deeply. And I've already gotten emails and text messages from people that I don't even know who have said what this book has done for them. But obviously that's why I end the book with um, a call to action. Cause this is not just about reading and understanding. This is about creating systemic change so that black Americans can live longer, fuller, happier lives full of love that we deserve. It's such a good point. And I think that that whole line, you know, this is the United States. You can do anything if you put your mind to it. Okay. Well, for some that's true, uh, but it's so important to look at the background of each individual person. And the, you know, this is in the, in the case of a lot of people in this country, systemic racism or massive poverty. I mean, you write about how your mother grew up in poverty and she was forced to constantly move to different schools and apartments due to housing security. She never knew if there would be enough food on the table. I mean, that alone, it causes so much stress for a young person. Oh, oh yes. And we know, you know, there's something called um, the ACEs, Adverse Childhood Events. And we know, we know that impacts how, children fare when they get older. We know that actually impacts their brain structure. It it actually impacts parts of the brain. There's a study out last year that showed MRI changes um, in certain parts of the brain in children who experience the higher burden of ACEs. And so I I at least least hope that we are entering, you know, especially, you know, post-2020, this 
public discourse where we can talk about how systemic factors really, really, really harm, not only harm Black people, but predispose us to dying, you know, prematurely, and that this starts in childhood. We're going to take a quick break. Today, we're speaking with Dr. Uche Blackstock. She's out with a brand new book, Legacy, A Black Physician Reckons with Racism in Medicine, and it's already a New York Times bestseller. Dr. Blackstock is a physician and founder and CEO of Advancing Health Equity. Her organization's goal is to partner with healthcare organizations to dismantle racism in healthcare and to close the gap in racial health inequities. She previously worked as an associate professor in the Department of Emergency Medicine and the faculty director for recruitment, retention, and inclusion in the Office of Diversity Affairs at NYU School of Medicine. She's also been an ER doctor in a few hospitals. Dr. Blackstock received her undergraduate and medical degrees from Harvard University, making her and her twin sister Oni the first black mother-daughter legacies from Harvard Medical School. This is your call. We'll be back after this. This is your call. I'm Rose Aguilar. Coming up tomorrow, we will discuss this year's Black Choreographers Festival at San Francisco's Dance Mission on February 24th and 25th. We'll find out what's inspiring today's Black choreographers and how they hope the dance scene evolves. If you have a show idea or a guest idea, you can email us your call at kalw.org. And if you'd like to join today's conversation with Dr. Uche Blackstock, who is out with a brand new New York Times bestselling book, Legacy, A Black Physician Reckons with Racism in Medicine, you can give us a call at 866-798-8255. If you have any stories about racism in healthcare or about how racism impacted your ability to receive adequate care, we'd love to hear from you. If you are a healthcare professional and you'd like to talk about this, what you're seeing and if you've seen changes as a result of so many people like Dr. Blackstock's work, we'd love to hear from you. You can also email your call at kalw.org. Dr. Blackstock, I have one more question about your your amazing mother. You write that after she visited an oncologist, she told you that the doctors looked at it's it is it karyotype? It's karyotype. Mm-hmm. Karyotype. A picture of the chromosomes at the cellular level and said it seemed to him as if she had been exposed to high doses of radiation at some point in her life, which would have increased the risk for her type of cancer. You know, we do so many shows about environmental racism, and that is so connected to what you are writing about. Yeah. So, you know, looking back, um, you know, when my mother was diagnosed with leukemia, that the type that she had was very resistant to therapy. So we took her for a second opinion um, to Dana-Farber Institute, and it was there that they examined her chromosomes, and, and the oncologist there made that statement. And then researching for the book and learning more about my mother's history, the neighborhoods that she lived in, I found out and I discovered that she had lived in several Superfund sites, sites where there had been toxic dumping uh, while she was growing up. And the oncologist had said, you know, it looks like you were exposed to radiation very early on in your life. So it is very likely because the kind of leukemia my mother got is something that, or that she developed rather, is the type that black women rarely develop. It's very, very, it's, it's rare. It's typically older white men. And so really thinking about, you know, my mother's exposure or potential exposure to to radiation or radioactive substances when she was younger as a result of living in poverty um, near these sites, it really caused me to grieve even more, um, you know, her death and her, her premature loss. Wow. Well, we have an email from a listener who says, I hate going to the doctor because of past experiences. If I get sick, I just hope I get better. And this reminds me of a story you told in your book, Dr. Blackstock. It was during COVID and you were covered in PPE. So the full on white coating around your face and your body and a patient walked in and asked if you were black. And when you said yes, she was completely relieved. Yeah, you know, it was, it was, it was a, remember, it was a, a patient who was there for shortness of breath. Um, she'd been diagnosed with COVID a few weeks earlier 
And I could see when I walked into the room, her eye, she looked scared in her eyes, even though she had a mask on. And she stopped me and said, are you, are you black? And, you know, at that time, that was, you know, in, I believe April or May of 2020, we literally recovered head to toe in, in PPE. And she said, are you black? And I, and I nodded, yes. And you should have seen the breath that she let out from her body. Her body almost collapsed. And she said, okay, thank you, doctor. I just want to make sure that you'll listen to me. And so while I was, you know, very proud in that moment to be able to be there for her, I, it also struck me that obviously she had had experiences where she felt like she wasn't listened to. And that is just so common for Black patients. And it really shouldn't be the case. Like, they shouldn't have to walk into a clinic worried about whether they're going to be listened to or not. Wow. Well, as you write, the studies indicate that Black patients who are seen by Black doctors have better outcomes. There's a study about Black babies who were cared for by Black neonatologists and pediatricians in their first year of life. They're more likely to survive than those treated by white doctors. And Black physicians are more likely to specialize in primary care and practice in underserved communities. Can you talk more about the importance of talking about this? Yeah, and so that's what we call racial concordance when the patient and the and the health professional or the physician are the same racial demographic background. And what we see from the data is that for black patients, this is especially important. Like it's actually a matter of of life and death, unfortunately. I don't think it should be, but you know, but it also speaks to the dearth of Black physicians, um, you know, we know less than six percent of all black fish of all physicians rather are black, and over thirteen percent of the U.S. population is black. And so we know that it's it's less likely that black patients will be able to have um, black physicians when we know it's incredibly important. Like we even know there's some studies that show black patients are more likely to be spoken over mm-hmm. um, by their physicians than white patients. They're more likely to leave healthcare interactions feeling, um, you know, unseen, ignored, um, dismissed with a less positive affect. So it really does make a difference. Obviously, I don't think that should be the case, but it does in 2024. It matters who your doctor is. And the problem is the number of Black physicians in this country, as you write in your book, Legacy, remains very low with only 5.4% of all U.S. physicians identifying as Black, 2.6% as Black men, 2.8% as Black women, although Black people make up 13% of the population. Right. And so, yeah, and so that's why I also felt it was important to talk about this report in the book called the Flexner Report, because, you know, we look in 2024, we're saying, you know, why are there so few Black doctors? And there's not because there's anything inherently wrong with us. There's something, what's what's called like policy violence. There was a policy in 1910 that was commissioned by the American Medical Association and Carnegie Foundation. They commissioned an education specialist named Abraham Flexner to go around to all 155 U.S. and Canadian medical schools to assess the standards. And he compared these schools against Western European schools, as well as the gold standards in the United States, which was Johns Hopkins in medical school in Baltimore. His, his report actually led to the closure, not just of black medical schools, but white medical schools. But there were only seven black medical schools at the time by 1905, they had trained about 1,500 medical st- black medical students. The report recommended five of those schools close, leaving behind Howard and Meharry. It is estimated that those five medical schools would have trained between 25,000 and 35,000 black physicians. Wow. Yeah. Let's, let's talk about what I love about your book is in addition to you writing about your experience, your mother, your call to action, you also bring in such important historical context. And I just kept asking myself, why didn't I know about this? So in the section about the Flexner Report, you write that for centuries in this country, white-only medical schools with their exclusionary policies and practices made it virtually impossible for Black people to receive medical training. It was only after the Civil War, with thousands of injured veterans in desperate need of medical care, that a small handful of Black trainees began to be admitted to white medical schools in the North And it wasn't until Reconstruction that a number of black medical schools sprang up in the South, enabling us to finally have access to medical training in greater numbers. 
So can you tell us about this? Because all of a sudden these schools just popped up uh, in the right. mid to late 1800s. Yeah, and, and they popped up, you know, essentially against all odds. Um, you know, we know because of the legacy of slavery, like these schools did not have the same resources or wealth that predominantly white schools had. Um, but they still were, put, I mean, they still, you know, by the mid the mid um, 1900s or the first decade of the 1900s had trained about 1500, you know, black physicians. And just so you know, to this day, Howard and Meharry, those two two schools that remained open after the report, they still train the most black physicians in the country in 2024. Um, But anyway, yes, this report, it led to the closure of five of those schools. And, you know, I didn't know about this report, um, the Flexner report, I didn't learn about it in medical school. I did not learn about it in residency. I learned about it as a practicing physician, but it is so important to understand and to know the history, um, to understand why we are where we are today. And, you know, I make comparisons to the recent SCOTUS decision around race conscious admissions that, you know, there are these policies that go into effect that we may not see the outcomes. It may be, may take a ripple effect of over, you know, um, a century or more to see the impact of these policies. Right. And and we should also mention, since you're talking about Abraham Flexner, the author of this Flexner report, he had strongly racist opinions on the role of Black people in medicine. He wrote, Black students should be trained in hygiene rather than surgery and were best employed as sanitarians who could help protect whites from common diseases like tuberculosis. And you you did not learn about this in medical school. No, not at all. And that's why, you know, it's so important that I included it in Legacy because the other issues that, you know, similarly is that there are all of these, you know, physicians who are revered in medicine, you know, like Abraham Flexner has been respected and revered. There are others like him who held very avidly racist views about Black people and felt that we were inferior, but they were the ones that were, you know, developing really important policies that impacted institutions. They were also the ones that were making significant, important discoveries clinically, but doing so in ways that traumatized and, ex- and exploited Black patients and enslaved Black people. So it's, we really, within medicine, we have, there's a reckoning that needs to happen to acknowledge like these, that these discoveries and um, policies were created and developed in ways that were actually um, quite horrific. Do you know, is the Flexner Report and the other historical context you write about in your new book, Legacy, is that history being taught in today's medical schools? I will say that, you know, post-2020, you know, just like with all institutions, you know, our students, you know, wrote demand letters to administration saying, we want to make sure that we're, what we're learning is is the full history. And, and so there are some medical schools I know that have integrated some of this content into their curriculum. Have all of them? No, not at all. Um, it, requ- it requires uh, a lot of intentionality. Um, it also requires for faculty who've been teaching for years to undergo, you know, faculty development around these topics and issues. You know, a lot of them, the students actually know more than the faculty do. Um, so, you know, it, it, it's not as straightforward, but it, it definitely has to happen. You write that when you learned about the Flexner report, it, sat, it had such a profound impact on you. You write in your book, Legacy, when you were a little girl and even into your 20s, you thought that your mother was successful because she worked so hard. She loved science. She was determined. But more recently, you write, you realized that she wasn't exceptional. She was just one of the lucky ones who made it through. The fact is there have always been so many, quote, exceptional Black people like your mother who never had the same opportunity, who were never able to go to medical school because of systemic racism. Yeah, Rose. Actually, I get emotional just hearing you read that part because when we think about the impact of systemic racism, it really is a loss, um, a loss for our communities, um, a loss of opportunities, a loss of resources. 
I think that there were so many other brilliant black children that grew up with my mom that should have also ended up at Harvard Medical School, but did not because they were born into poverty and because of the practices and policies related to systemic racism. So I really want to um, disentangle this idea of like black exceptionalism. I think the fact that in 20 in 2005, when my sister and I graduated from Harvard Medical Medical School, the fact that we were the first Black mother-daughter legacy in 2005 is really, you know, it's quite appalling. Um, and since then, I think there's only been a second Black mother-daughter legacy. So these institutions have so much work to do. Like, we shouldn't be having these first in 2024. It really right. is unacceptable. Yeah. Well, and also in the epilogue, you write about how we all have this idea of what legacy means, but for you and your sister, the word legacy means something very different. Yes. And, and so it's, it's interesting, you know, this idea that you know, we talk about, you know, in, in mainstream media, it's like legacy admissions, you know, right. you know, especially at these, um, you know, uh, the Ivy League schools and, you know, you know, benefiting from the fact that your your parent or grandparent went to these schools. But I think for, for us, it's so much more of a holistic idea of what legacy is. It's really the obligation we feel to continue the work that our mother started, the obligation that we feel to making the road to becoming a, a physician or health professional easier for those behind us because we know that it's been un, it's, it's been unjust and unfair, um, and so that is what the legacy is, is is about. It's not about you know you know taking advantage of resources that, that these schools have to offer and then running away with them. It's really about bringing them back to our community. It's really about how do we make how do we make our communities in this country healthier so that Black people can live full lives. Today, we're speaking with Dr. Uche Blackstock, author of the new book and the New York Times bestseller, Legacy, A Black Physician Reckons with Racism in Medicine. We have an email from Susie who writes, in the late 70s, I worked at San Francisco General as a nurse. It was known they did not hire black nurses. There were only two black nurses back then. Most of the low-wage ancillary staff were people of color. Dr. Blackstock, I bet you're getting a lot of messages from people who are sharing stories about what what it was like to work in medicine back in the 70s and the 80s. Oh, yes. I mean, yes, so many, so many stories. But what's interesting from that email is that even at the private hospitals that I've worked at until recently, you still see that kind of hierarchy. I talk about riding the elevator. I don't write, write about this in the book, but riding the elevator in, in, in Tish. And when you go from the basement where most of the maintenance workers or housekeeping are and you go and you go higher, it gets less brown. <laughs> it gets more white in terms of staffing. When we see more of the physicians and the nurses, they're more likely to be white. When we see um, the folks who are doing housekeeping or food services, they're most likely black or Latino, you know, and so that and that's in that's in current times. So there's so much that has not changed. And I think. You know, that's why I use I use some of my mother's words in the book to say that we really have to act quickly and swiftly because so much has not changed since the 80s and 90s. And they've, in fact, worsened. Right. Well, thank you for the email, Susie. Uh, let's hear from a caller who's been waiting patiently, Greg in Palo Alto. Hi, Greg. Hello. Um, I, I hope I can articulate this because I'm trying to formulate it as I'm speaking. Um, I know that your guest has mentioned... Uh, brought up the issue of poverty, and I just wanted to say that I, I have no way of knowing how much worse uh, the healthcare system is with regard to black people in this country as opposed to uh, poor people in general, because I know that poor people in this country uh, get either substandard or no health care whatsoever, and that um, the safety net in this country is just, I mean, well, it's a joke. Um, uh, it just does not provide uh, adequate health care to anybody who's in poverty. So I have no way of knowing uh, if she can respond to that or not, but uh, I just know that being poor, um, you're going to be in bad shape when it comes to health care. Thank you, Greg. Yeah. yeah, thank you for that. And I do want to say, you know, so I may have, I may not have mentioned this, this stat earlier, but, you know, the, the, I still, with my Harvard 
medical school degree and undergraduate degree, I'm still five times more likely to die of pregnancy-related complications than my white peers. You know, we hear these stories about about people like Serena Williams, who is the greatest athlete of all time, who has the affluence, who has the wealth, who still almost died of postpartum complications. And we also have the data that shows that for, for Black people in this country, socioeconomic status, you know, education, professional level of attainment is still not as protective as it is for white people. So all that to say is that while poverty, poverty definitely has a negative impact on health, we know that systemic racism does also since income and wealth is not as protective for Black people um, in this country either. Thank you for that, Greg. Um, Dr. Blackstock, we're, we're almost out of time. I just wonder, can you share a little bit of your experience at NYU and why it was so important to share those stories? I, I mean, you went through so much there. And just to remind listeners, you were associate professor in the Department of Emergency Medicine and faculty director of recruitment, retention, and inclusion in the Office of Diversity Affairs at NYU. You were often the only Black person on staff. You talk about going to these conferences, being the only Black person in the room. So can you just give us, I just think this is such an important story, a thumbnail sketch of your time at NYU and why you decided to leave. Yeah, thank you so much, Rose. And, And just to say that you know, when I was going through this experience of like being the only or or one of the only, you know, from the outside, people probably would say, oh, she should be so happy. You have all of these titles. You're doing all of this great work. But I also felt like I couldn't show up as myself authentically. I couldn't talk about the issues related to equity, diversity and inclusion in a way that um, I felt comfortable. I felt worried about being retaliated against. I actually felt very scared, especially once I was handpicked for a DI role at the medical school. I came to find out that it was actually just a figurehead role. Um, and unfortunately, I was silenced and muzzled in that role. But what, what's interesting, and, and when I wrote the op-ed about leaving academic medicine, is that this is a very similar experience that many Black faculty have in academia, in academia overall um, that they have in within corporate America. I get so many emails from people saying, this is what I went through. But when we're going through it, we feel so isolated. So um, part of the work I actually do through my organization, Advancing Health Equity, is think about how do we create diverse, um, inclusive work cultures and environments in healthcare so that we can retain people like me so that I won't want to leave and, 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 you know, do my own, have my own health equity consulting firm that we can stay, we can contribute to the environment and to the, into the workplace culture. We can contribute our ideas. We can be respected, valued and appreciated. And so that's why I felt was incredibly important to tell my story about my, my journey in academic medicine. And a lot of people might be surprised because they assume NYU, New York is so racially diverse. How could this happen at NYU? Right. That's the other thing. The fact that here we are in one of the most diverse cities in the country, but still, obviously, there is an institutional problem. If for me to be in one of the largest departments in the hospital faculty-wise, but still to be either the only or one of two, uh, it's really egregious when you think about it. Our, our, um, our faculty, our students, our trainees really should reflect the patients we're caring for, and we care for patients at Bellevue also, as well as at Tisch. Um, but this is not just the case for NYU. This is the case for a lot of uh, private academic institutions. We have about two minutes left, Dr. Blackstock. You write that This book really is a call to reimagine who we are as a country. Again, the only wealthy country in the world that does not have a universal healthcare system. You also share a very important history about that. You write that, I don't know where my journey will take me, but I know for now I'll work from the outside to make things better on the inside. The truth is we need better care infrastructure everywhere, not just in health. So what are your thoughts about where you see your role in the coming years? Sure. Yeah, I see my role as really helping connect the dots, especially for policymakers, about thinking about health in all policies. Like it's not just about health and healthcare, about creating environments where our patients can receive equitable care or that health professionals are trained appropriately to care for us. Or even I do think everyone should have single payer universal health care. So that's one piece of it. But we know that won't make 
that well, that's not the only solution. So I want policymakers to think about housing, education, employment, workplace protections, uh, you know, paid family and sick leave. How can we think about creating policies that make everyone healthier and live longer lives? You've testified in front of Congress. Are you hearing from policymakers about your book and your call to action? Yeah, definitely I am. And even from my op-eds that I wrote, like in the pandemic, I wrote op-eds about the vaccine rollout and how Black communities should be prioritized. And I learned that there were policymakers, even on local levels, that were reading those op-eds and it was informing um, policies that they were they were developing on the ground and locally. And so I thought that's why I feel it's so important to keep speaking up because people are listening. Dr. Uche Blackstock is a physician and the founder and CEO of Advancing Health Equity, an organization she founded to partner with healthcare organizations to dismantle racism in healthcare and to close the gap in racial health equities inequities. Dr. Blackstock previously worked as an associate professor in the Department of Emergency Medicine and faculty director for recruitment, retention, and inclusion in the Office of Diversity Affairs at NYU School of Medicine. In her book, Legacy, she writes about why she left NYU and what she endured there. Dr. Blackstock received her undergraduate and medical degrees from Harvard University, making her and her twin sister, Oni, the first Black mother-daughter legacies from Harvard Medical School. Her new book, Legacy, A Black Physician Reckons with Racism in Medicine, is already a New York Times bestseller, and she writes beautifully about her mother, Dr. Dale Gloria Blackstock. Dr. Uche Blackstock, thank you so much for joining us, and really, congratulations on all of your important work. We'd love to have you back. Thank you so much for having me, Rose. It was a pleasure. Thank you. You can find out more about Dr. Uche Blackstock's work at yourcallradio.org. Thanks to Savannah Harriman Pote for producing today's show. Thanks to Kevin Vance for engineering our show. And we hope you can join us tomorrow. We will discuss this year's Black Choreographers Festival at San Francisco's Dance Mission, February 24th and 25th. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Rose Aguilar. It's your call. 